Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNote, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me is a man who can feel the reverberations from Liu He's pounding stress headache from all the way outside of the Third Ring Road in Beijing. It's James Hall. That's actually probably a pretty fair characterization. Yeah, I, I think I kind of. He's literally. I mean, I think everyone involved in the trade stuff must be having a horrible time, but I think he's probably having a slightly worse time. But thanks to all of them for trying to repair, you know, and bridge this gap between China and the U.S. We appreciate it. Give them all a a, a shinkula. <laughs> yeah, Shinkula. Uh, anyways, you want to say the the uh, disclaimer? Yes. Okay. So nothing said on this podcast should be construed as investment advice or a solicitation of services. Even our numbers may be incorrect or off. Investing is risky. Speak with your financial advisor and do your own research before making investment decisions. And I also just add that we're recording this on May 9th, right. the afternoon Beijing time. Yeah, well, we have Shai Oster, Asia Bureau Chief for the Information, joining us later on. We're going to talk about SoftBank, their vision fund, what they are, and um, kind of go into kind of all the madness around uh, their potential IPO and um, the ways that they are disrupting venture capital and the tech industry. But before then, I don't want to get too much into this because things are changing every day. But apparently the trade war is back on. It was almost over, then it's not over. Yeah, yeah, no, this is a fluid thing. And whatever we say, whenever this um, podcast gets released, uh, things may change because it's literally, there's, a, there's a, a potential tweet happening every minute. Not doesn't happen every minute, but it's potentially could happen every minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, so between yeah. between jabs at you know uh, at Democratic lawmakers or you know NFL players uh, and uh, what else? Uh, eating his McDonald's and uh, watching Fox and Friends. Uh, you know, Donald Trump may decide to. You know, send the markets up or down five hundred points. Who knows? Um. <laughs> right. By the way, we, I, you know, there's a really funny meme that was making the run run around uh, Chinese uh, social media, and that was Thanos. You know, they're like Thanos can snap his fingers, and you know, half the people on Earth disappear, or the universe, sorry, uh, disappear, and then Trump can snap his tweet sort of thing and half the people in China A shares lose money. <laughs> his hair is basically was- an infinity stone. That's actually what it's um it's covering up. You know, that's the the infinity stone underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah we, we we anyway. I mean it's it's obviously incredibly consequential, but there's very little way of predicting. Apparently um the Reuters reported yesterday, I believe that so that's the eighth that some White House sources had said that the China that the Chinese side was trying to kind of walk back a few points of the deal, and then Trump, you know, did his whole thing, and then now apparently Liu He is going to go to Washington or not go to Washington or go to Washington or not go to Washington. <laughs> he's going. He's going. He's on his way. That's what I heard. Okay. All right. But yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah. So there's there's really um, you know not. Like we'll follow that. 
But there, maybe this will all be resolved by the time this podcast comes out. Maybe who knows? That'd be cool. Who knows? <laughs> I, I I find it is something that is so like it, it there there it's so depressing on so many levels for me. I mean, I think you know, listeners could probably understand that I'm not like particularly thrilled that someone like Donald Trump is president of the United States. Um, but uh, but also just. <laughs> Like the, I'm constantly reminded of uh, just kind of how much of this is determined, or how much of kind of my life, or you know, the 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 world right now is determined by um, so few people who maybe I don't always have entirely high regard for. <laughs> but but yeah. Anyways, uh, but let's move on to talk about other things in the news. We've been covering uh, you know, for the last few months. You know, we've been covering kind of the the. The, the ups and downs and, and backs and forths of, uh, the Chinese gaming, uh, industry and, uh, its regulatory kind mm. of adjustments. Um, and we had a, uh, what, what I think, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it is, uh, is kind of a, um, I think like a, a, a <laughs> one of those kind of like, like humorous kind of, uh, outcomes in China of, the how kind of ridiculous kind of the whole regulatory process can get with the Tencent game PUBG, so PUBG Mobile. So, so James, could you tell us a little bit more about? Yeah, this? yeah. So Pub, PUBG was was uh, developed, I think, by maybe a South Korean company. I could get that wrong, but anyway, this company has been making a lot of money internationally, and Tencent built the mobile game version. Of the of this uh, game, and the international version has been making money. The Chinese version that is owned by Tencent, and they, I mean, they don't, they can't make any money. They they never got monetization approval. Now, in order to get monetization approval, um, you know, we saw the gaming regulations change, where they basically made it so you can't have any gaming, uh, gambling apps, games. And that includes like mahjong and obviously poker and a, a few other things. We also can't have any blood. And PUBG is one of those battle royale games where you jump out of a plane and you race around. And you try to pick up guns and then you try to kill everybody else and be the last person alive. And uh, they changed the game. Bloodier Fortnite. So now, yeah, yeah, it's more. It's like a realistic, more realistic, less cartoonish. Uh, but anyway. They changed the game. Now it's called Game for Peace, and He Ping Jingying is the Chinese name. And now, you know, previously when when you die, you fall over, and there's like blood on the ground and whatever. And then a box appears to that where someone can come over and pick up all your stuff you were carrying. And now what happens is the if you if you shoot someone. They don't immediately drop down. They actually reach into their back pocket and place a loot box in front of them, and then wave goodbye. And uh, Techno did a did a piece on this that came out today. And uh, one Wayboy Wayboy user is quoted as saying, "The waving feature is super annoying." Baby Lemon Breath said, "That's the Wayboy handle." Um, every time I saw that, you know, the the enemies waving, I felt that they were not dead, so I. I kept shooting at them. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, gotta be really annoying. But other kind of funny thing, I mean, this is sort of, you know, the, the whole regulations are about getting rid of violence in games and, you know, we're trying to tone down the violence. But now 
this game has an ad for the Chinese Air Force uh, built into it, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, but that that seems to be like where they're. I mean, it's it's a it, it's kind of funny, but it's also like uh, it's like you just kind of roll your eyes at it. But it, with a lot of this this content, it's all it's so clumsily done because the you know, kind of the regulatory you know uh, kind of restrictions on everything keeps keep changing. But you get kind of these these oddly kind of played down, like they play down the violence, they play down the sex, they kind of, you know, kind of neuter all that, and then they add like some kind of patriotic element or whatever. But it all makes it just kind of seem uh, not very, uh, it seems clumsy, I think, you know? I got to read, I got to read one more quote from this TechNode article. Uh, <laughs> So some disappointed players went straight this into... This by Tony Shu, by the way, right? Yeah. Okay. Some disappointed players went straight to mocking the game. Quote, I suggest that the game remove weapons as well since they are super violent. We can just hold our hands together and watch the sunset and decide who's the champion with rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> uh, I, I mean... That is funny. That is really, really funny. I think people, uh, so estimates, you know, China Renaissance analysts there said that the game could potentially generate eight to 10 billion RMB, um, in annual revenue, which is, you know, will be, will be very nice. Anyway, I haven't tried the game, but yeah, hopefully it does because they've literally lost like an entire year of potential revenue on, on this game. Yeah, yeah. I think there's just a with with this. You know, we've talked about it with uh, with ITE and kind of the 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 crying princess show was Yen, no Yenshi Palace, right? The um, but the these these things that are incredibly popular. These you know whether they're you know some kind of content or you know, games or, or social media or whatnot, and just trying to kind of navigate within this very this constantly changing and and kind of opaque. Uh, you know, regulatory regime. It is. It, it's always been a, tr- a, a tough thing in China, but is is kind of becoming even tougher. So it is definitely a theme to keep an eye on. Anything else before we go to our interview with Shai Oster? No, let's go. Let's go. There. All right, uh, we're going to go to our uh, our talk with Shai Oster, Asia Bureau Chief for the Information. Earlier this month, it was reported that senior executives at SoftBank Group. We're considering an IPO for its vision fund. So what is SoftBank's vision fund and why is it so important? Joining us today is Shai Oster. He is the Asia Bureau Chief for the Information. And uh, Shai, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So SoftBank's vision fund is one of the most influential forces in the tech world, yet outside of tech and financial circles, uh, they're not really that widely known. For somebody unfamiliar with SoftBank and the vision fund, uh, what should they know about it? The founder, Masayoshi Son, is perhaps the best or luckiest tech investor ever. He was an early investor in Alibaba, the giant Chinese e-commerce website slash entertainment slash finance juggernaut. Uh, they invested, I think, maybe $20 million way, way back. And now that stake is worth several billion dollars. Uh, it's considered the best uh, tech investment ever, probably. Who knows, maybe Uber will have some better ones. And also, it's good to know that this guy in the first round of tech uh, boom and bust was the richest man in Japan at one point. And when the tech bubble burst, 
his uh, value went pretty much close to zero, and he managed to rebuild himself up to now. I think he's back, uh, if not the richest man in Japan among the richest. And he has the other thing you should know about him is he's a he's no ordinary executive. This man, when he he's like a salesman, he has a vision. He never talks small. Everything he talks is grandiose, over the top. Almost, uh, there's almost like a, a, a ringmaster quality to the way he describes things. Um, you know, the vision fund is driven by this idea of sort of like AI, robotics, sort of this grand, what he calls it, like, you know, he compares uh, what's happening now to the industrial revolution, that there's going to be an AI revolution that'll be just as profoundly impactful as, as the industrial revolution was. So this is a guy with, um, I guess cojones. I don't know if that's a, a, a PC to say these days, but he certainly has. He combines uh, some real financial acumen and business management skills as well, but with this just like real showman, almost showman's ability to sell a story. Yeah, that, wow. that's that's yeah. been kind of my my vibe as well. I, I kind of feel there is a, a bit of Travis Kalanick, uh, Steve Jobs. Yt Ja, uh, Jack Ma, <laughs> in him for 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 better or worse. Well, um, you gotta be right. I mean, but, how, how is he gonna convince somebody? Give me forty five billion dollars, right? You have to have a little bit of chutzpah and a little bit of you got yeah swagger. Yeah, he's got swagger. So for just as for for the the uninitiated, you know, SoftBank has you know you you mentioned Alibaba, but they really have kind of a fin- fingers in the pies of of many of the biggest names. In, in tech right now, Uber. I think they own what sixteen percent of Uber. Uh, what what are some of the other names that that people might be familiar with that they've invested heavily into? All the mobility plays they they're they're invested in. So they're in uh, Uber, they're in Didi, they're in Grab. I don't know who they are in India, but so that's definitely part of his vision. Uh, they're in chips. They're uh, in Nvidia. They're also in ARM. Uh, so they have the upstream part and the downstream, and then they're also big in, well, WeWork is one of their biggest investments, uh, which is also barreling towards an IPO. What else would you want to know? Boston, also Boston Dynamics. Right, famously, exactly, exactly. Yeah, Supercell, they, they have a stake. Yeah, I mean, it's... And, and, and WAG, don't forget, the dog walking WAG. Oh. <laughs> a couple hundred million in that. They're wow. also... Uh, Significant backers of Bike Dance as well, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, I believe that they headed up their their last round. But yeah, so yeah, so and, and looking at their uh, Crunchbase page, I mean, it looks like they lead a lot of you know the investments that they do make too. So they're they are heavily heavily active. Yeah. So really, kind of yeah, they cut big checks. So a a mover and shaker. So not just that they're putting money into everything, but they're really kind of deciding who is, you know, they're 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 kingmakers in some ways. Yeah, they're they're negotiating terms. They're kind of setting the terms, and they've raised funds. They've raised uh, three funds, I think, at least here on Crunchbase. The first was a hundred million, and then the next was the Vision Fund, a hundred billion. So that's a thousand times. Larger and then uh, and then the most recent March seventh they they raised the innovation fund and that was five billion. Yeah, and and the, the guiding principle with the vision fund basically seems to be, I will crush you, right? Like we're gonna like we're gonna find <laughs> there are all these markets where there's like two players and they come to the 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 guy they like and say, 
here's a check for, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. So it's like, take my $5 billion and you will destroy the enemy. If you don't take my $5 billion, I'll go to your enemy and he'll take it and he'll destroy you. So it's kind of, what's interesting though, is that in a lot of situations, the enemies have said, you know what, we don't need the $5 billion. Money doesn't actually, you know, to, to, to quote Cindy Lauper, money doesn't change everything. There have been cases, it's interesting to see that cases where people are betting against the soft bank and anointed king and doing okay. So you see like um, the Gojek grab battle in Southeast Asia, for example. And I think also in India, what's happening between Flipkart and Amazon, although SoftBank sold out to Flipkart to Walmart. But anyway. Like it, it, it's interesting, the, um, at least in the mobility space, it seems like they're, they're not trying to pick winners or crown winners or make made men winners. But it seems like they're just kind of s- spreading their cash around in general just about everywhere they can, at least in autonomous driving and... and uh, yeah, I, I think I, so. So some of what I understand is the philosophy is that by owning stakes in all of these guys, so so the, the mobility sector, autonomous, the the um, ride hailing industry, is just a subsidies business, right? We in Asia we understand subsidy businesses very well, um, and and um, I, I think that what seems to be the strategy is that okay, if I own enough of a stake in all of these guys, I can engineer global mergers and make this finally like. A viable business, because the only way it's a viable business is if you have like monopoly or near monopoly status and you can stop paying out subsidies to the drivers and the customers. And so that's what I think is underlying their moves in sort of taking a piece of DD. And then there's also arguably like, you know, expertise in China doesn't translate to expertise in the U.S. and expertise in the U.S. doesn't translate into expertise in Latin America, et cetera. Right. But I think also the idea is Local that you can yeah. eventually you, you engineer some kind of you know, Nissan Renault like alliance where you stop undercutting each other uh, and you can all make money together. This kind of like hyper aggressive approach of just kind of injecting capital into these companies and either being like, you crush them or we will crush you. You know, it, for me, it's kind of illuminating because, you know, you see these, these companies, you know, we've talked about ByteDance before kind of with it, with their kind of manic user acquisition or, you know, ride hailing as well, where um, it doesn't seem to, it, it seems to be, you know, the big question is always like, you know, when, when is the music finally going to stop? But when you see kind of that SoftBank is this hand behind it, it all of a sudden makes a little bit more sense why, you know, why these dynamics play out the way they do, that there's, that there are these, these VC forces that are so aggressive that are pushing, that are both injecting money and also, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, pushing the, the industry to kind of, and these big players to move in the ways that they are. Um, so speaking of these, uh, aggressive approaches, um, you know, SoftBank's Vision Fund has been known for the kind of these aggressive approaches and approaches and, and really, really heavy leverage and risky bank. I mean, you, you talked about their founder basically becoming the richest man in China, then losing all his money. And now, I mean, not the richest man in Japan, then losing all of his money, then becoming the richest man in Japan again. <laughs> so obviously that, that's kind of, um, indicative of this. But right now, uh, when you know, SoftBank still gets a lot of criticism for their heavy debt load and their their very kind of aggressive plays, what is kind of the bullish argument behind the Vision Fund right now, and what is more of the, the bearish one? If you're um, a fund manager and you're you're interested in potentially this upcoming IPO, you know, what are the two sides of the argument there? For me, the the bullish argument is um, 
and I think uh, Masha San says this pretty pretty frequently, but you know that the value of their holdings uh, in some of these tech unicorns is you know twice what their listed value kind of has them at, uh, and so taking that, you'd see it as like a fifty percent discount. Now, I personally am not bullish, so beyond that, I, I don't know how much I can add, but I think the bear argument is like. Finally, well, I mean, it, SoftBank's been around for a while, but finally, if the Vision Fund lists, I mean, this is a chance to short unicorns, and like there, there hasn't really been, you know, a chance to do that. And uh, you know, in the private markets, they get to kind of, you know, each round kind of bumps up the price each time, and it's rare that you see down rounds. And you know, there's not very much uh, criticism within VC kind of. You know, circles. So you don't really get the kind of pushback that you get in public markets, which, you know, maybe this is, uh, it also ties into vision fund, you know, potentially IPOing uh, later this year. But that's interesting. I, I like the idea because what was it? Uh, was it Lyft or which was the IPO where the, the, they were actually setting up shorts for uh, the stakeholders on the IPO? They were trying to hedge their risk and, um, well, te- Tesla. I mean, if anyone bought into those convertible uh, notes, I mean, they you know they usually hedge those anyway. Which was this? This is actually a story we broke. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll circle back to you. But so, so I'll, I'll give you the the bullish argument is that right? Uh, for, you're talking about the Vision Fund, not not SoftBank itself. So the the bullish the Vision Fund, yeah, yeah. The bullish argument is that they are not going to do a traditional IPO. They're going to do the same thing that Spotify did, right? I'm going to go straight to market, not have bankers magically make make a number, and this will be aimed squarely at like giving retail investors a chance to go get into the VC market. And boy, you know, you know that mom, oh, how charitable, right, how exciting for, for VCP. Uh, I can't, now I can lose my shirt just like everybody else. Right. Uh, <laughs> the other bullish argument is that, and I don't know if it's directly linked to vision fund, but broadly speaking, SoftBank has a unique position of being in Japan and what are their negative interest rates still in Japan? And, no one else is really borrowing money in, in the way that he is. And the banks, doesn't matter if he has a double junk, super stinky bond rating, the banks continue to lend to him because he does actually have a cash generating businesses in the, um, uh, telecoms that he runs, right? In, in, within, within Japan. They're pretty, they, they generate cash to pay off his debt. They don't, I don't think they'd miss bond payments. And the banks need to lend to somebody. And he's kind of like the only one borrowing tens of billions of dollars. And the other thing they do is they're geniuses. The guys running the Vision Fund aren't technical guys. They're not like former engineers or former entrepreneurs. These are guys who came out of um, debt derivative instruments from Deutsche Bank, right? And so these guys are geniuses at like repackaging debt and creating exotic instruments, right? The guy running the Vision Fund was instrumental in repackaging a lot of uh, SoftBank's debt into bonds and thereby reducing a lot of their debt load. So these guys, if there's a, if there's an angle, they'll figure it out, right? For better or worse, right? It could mean that like you create, you know, to the tech world CD, CDOs, or 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 you're creating, you know, you know, the oil future, you know, something more more. I, I don't know. I don't know what the metaphors would be. So you know that that's on the the bullish side. The bear side is that. Conglomerates tend to trade below the value of their parts, 
right? That's why you do spinoffs, right? Like Tencent has been spinning off its units lately, right? Because you have trap value and then like the investors, shareholders argue that like, we'll spin it out. We'll make, you know, if it has real value. Na- Naspers especially. Yeah, right? like Naspers, right? The only reason the Naspers exists is because it holds Tencent, right? It, it would be arguably, they, I think they are actually making some plans. Anyway, you, they are. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it makes more sense to like spin it out. So I think they, on average, Conglomerates trade at like a ten percent discount. I forget the exact number, but they don't trade. It's not, ten, ten to twenty. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's never going to trade above. Like, so it's like, well, well, why? If I believe in the underlying asset, let me buy the underlying asset, right? I, why am I going to buy your derivative on that asset? Like, basically, why am I going to pay SoftBank a fee to manage my money when I'd rather just buy the company itself? The other thing that makes me nervous is the, well, the Wall Street Journal story described like. Maybe we'll do an IPO. Maybe we'll raise some more money. Mistra has gone and promised all these deals to people that we don't even have the cash lined up for. We're going to hire 400 more people. Mm. It's like, whoa, guys, this sounds like. And then, and then, like, if you look at the sourcing on, you know, the stories, it's like executives are discussing. So it's like, is this guys in a bar just kind of spitballing ideas? Like, what's going on? So it's a little, maybe a little, um, Anxious. And, you know, Jessica Lesson, our founder, uh, wrote a column basically saying, arguing that that this marks the end, uh, you know, that this this idea is could be the moment, you know, where where um, could this mark the peak of the bubble? Mm. So I'm trying to find out their exact words. I just want if I'm going to quote. Yeah, there we go. The idea that SoftBank's $100 billion vision fund, the one perpetrating these losses by funneling capital into money-losing companies before they go public, might itself go public without yet seeing stable returns on its investments is alarming. So I kind of, I agree with her on this one. This one was a little like, why? But, you know, I'm just a journalist. I'm not playing with anybody's money. So take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, it's part of this kind of this this hot potato game. You know, we uh, we had Tim Culpin on a, a few weeks ago. Oh yeah, um, and this, that's the metaphor that he likes to use because none of these companies are are making money. It's or well, they're making money. Some they're they're bringing in money, but they're not. Um, they're know, spending they're not, money to make most money. Most of them are not like, profitable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you know, eventually, you know, the, the valuations keep going up, but. It's really just, you know, you have the investors cashing out, giving it to another investor, tries to inflate the, the value to cash to, to give it to somebody else. Meanwhile, there's there's no with a lot of these companies, there's no fundamental there. There's no there's no money that's being there's no profit. Right. So, you know, it's it seems like, you know, from from that perspective that the IPO is trying to take that hot potato and 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 push it on to to the public markets. Which is which is a little concerning, but but who knows? Maybe maybe that's going to keep going for for another however many years. And you know, there's every time you know when Facebook went public, it was the same the same you know concern as well. So so who knows? Yeah, another thing, kind of I guess maybe to support the bull case on the Vision Fund potential IPO or whatever is that you know they're investing kind of they invest. In early, I guess early stage, but they also do large investments late stage. And with these investments, they usually have like a liquidity preference. And being kind of later stage with the liquidity preference, you're you put yourself in front of everybody else uh, in terms of getting paid back first. So it's kind of like also makes it sort of like a like a capital stack ranking, like you know you would look at at debt. 
So it's great, you know, it's good for them. It's horrible for the the founders uh, and employees that have, you know, options and all these things. So, you know, the 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 ever growing, raising more and more money, higher valuation, higher valuation is kind of a, I don't know, I I doubt it can keep going. I I kind of agree with Jessica that this is, uh, you know, this could be like the pets dot com of like the internet bubble. Um, <laughs> And sort of mark the, you know, the the peak craziness, right? <laughs> but this is this is, I mean, the like skeptics and I, I what I would characterize as common sense folks <laughs> with with both tech and you know with the Chinese economy as well. You know, it's been you know, people have been calling for a crash for forever and saying, oh well, the bubble can't get further inflated. Then it, then it keeps getting further inflated. Right. Low interest rates. You know, the music's out of stuff at some time. Yeah, exactly. Low yes, interest exactly. rates, right? Yeah. This is all about low interest rates, right? So at the end of the day, like, there's a lot of money that's got to go someplace. Like, the other thing with Vision Fund, like, it had a lot of money and it has a mandate, so it had to make big checks. And, like, so, like, why mobility? It's one of the few places where you could deploy billions of dollars, right? So, and there's a lot of people still sitting on a ton of cash. So, you know, where am I going to put it, right? Okay, like, I can't leave it in the bank because it's, you know, interest rates were supposed to go up, but then they didn't, right? I thought this was the year where interest right. rates were going to, where, where the end of qualitative easing. Well, guess what? Didn't happen. Luckily, we got the Trump's trade war coming up, and maybe that's the spanner that's going to blow this whole thing out of the water. The other thing that's, I think, very disturbing to me, very unsettling, is the poop show that's happening in the mainland right now. Like, why are tech companies laying people off left, right, and center? Like, something is percolating. Mm. Something is afoot, right? These are supposed to be the cash-rich, you know, upgrade China story. And there's a bloodbath going on. And it's kind of like something something is bur- – and it's happening at kind of like a surprisingly fast rate, right? Like, Meituan Dianping, JD.com, Alibaba's kind of been flagging stuff. You know, I, so I think – you know, the trade war is like one thing that could really, I think actually on the show, it could be that, like, it's everyone's looking for an excuse to sell and write in sentiment. And maybe the trade war, if it's like, it's been this kind of like overhang. It is, it isn't, it is, it isn't like every day. We don't know. Trump has a like, you know, he wakes up in the morning with an itchy Twitter finger and like, ah, trade war. Right. You know, you just don't know what's <laughs> happening. I feel for Liu He He must have like the worst job in the world. Like stuck between yeah. Xi Jinping totally. and Trump. Like, can you not imagine? Right. Like, I just like the man's ulcer must be a gaping, you know, like, right. Uh, give the man a bio. Yeah. Right. But so that I think <laughs> that is the that's like it, it's, it's like everyone's so like, you, OK, so low interest rates. What are you going to do? Like, well, tech is kind of promising. Right. They have growth. Who cares if they're spending insane amounts of money? Like when I run it through my spreadsheet, like most of the guys making the investment aren't going into China to kick the tires. They're just looking at a spreadsheet from from an investor meeting, right? And they're like, I run it through my deck. Oh, I see X, Y, and Z, you know, cash flow X, free cash flow Y, blah, blah, blah. Sure, we can put some money into this, right? They're not going to go down and be like, huh, I think there might be some ad fraud going on that's inflating somebody. Like they're not, right? They don't have time. But like that sentiment yep. flips, right? We know that. Anyway, that's. My- I think also just just to add to that, I mean the the kind of move to passive we've seen in passive mm. investments and ETFs and China's inclusion in MSCI. I mean all these things kind of help you know keep it keep the uh, pump moving. Right, you know, right. Pumping. Like I, I don't know how it works, but I'm assuming that if you're like if you're a bite dance, 
and you know your valuation is going to be gazillions of dollars. And I'm an investor. I know like, well, we're so big, it's probably going to be included in an index, which means no matter what the performance is, there's a shitload of institutional oh, money that's just going to go into it no matter what. That has to. Right? So yeah, it's like index followers. Yeah. yeah so totally. you're like, okay, well, that's like, that's free money. Yeah. Right. I just have, we I mean, just that's, have to, that could, yeah. that could be like, as the cynic in me might say, you know, that's part of the drive for why these companies stay private for so long. And then they let in, you know, valuations get so high. Cause once they go public, they're like, Oh, I'm already in the S and P 500. Right. Or I'm already in, you know, like included in like a uh, many, many, I don't many think indexes. it's a cynical thing. I'm sure, like, I'm sure the, the, the private, the private equity guys who are last in are looking at it and saying, Okay, I'm willing to buy you. Like, it's so funny because it's like they're buying you at a price, right? So they're agreeing to buy you at a certain price, and then they have ratchets and all these clauses to protect them, right? So, like, I think it's such a it's such a racket, right? Like, I'm going to buy you at a price that's going to be big enough to get me into the index when I exit, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And then then you have passive flows you can sell to, right? And that's like great, you know. You know, <laughs> so sure, I have a lock in period of six months, like, like. You know, I, I I build in a ratchet yeah. that's su- supportive enough to like you know protect me on the downside and anyway. That's that's the thing. That, I mean, the lockup period. I mean, I've I've read some press and it's you know I'm not going to name call names out, but sometimes you see that they're saying you know this is a liquidity event for the fund, and it's like well, I mean, it, technically it's not a liquidity event until the lockup period right. expires, and so even though like yeah you know maybe. And it's another kind of maybe interesting question, you know, after Warren Buffett raised the problem of, um, you know, PE funds using, not not counting their like capital that they're potentially charging fees on that's sitting in treasury bills, you know, they're not using that in their IRR calculations. I wonder when they get that liquidity event, you know, and they hand over the shares of the public company, but no one can actually sell them. I mean, are they using the IPO price as the... Uh, the ending kind of, you know, here's my IRR, you know, I bought in here and I gave it to you as shares here and you were able to sell six months later. Right. You know, let's forget about what happened in between then and, you know, the actual liquidity event. Right. Um, anyway, that's, this is all. Anyways, I, I have a few more questions for Shai before we let him go. The first one, I, I, I didn't send you this uh, in the, in the question list beforehand, but uh, I, I do want to know, um, or what your take on this is. I know that there, that, uh, you know, that SoftBank has, you know, I mean, this might just be some of these grandiose plans, but they've talked about kind of basically having vision funds for each region of the world. So having like China have its own fund that they set up and then they have like a Southeast Asia fund or a Latin America fund. Have you been following this? Does this is this just um, kind of grandiose, um, you know, pie in the sky Thinking, or do you, do you think this is this is something that we can expect to see from SoftBank? I haven't seen about regional funds, but I, I've seen them talking about a, a vision fund too. And you know, at his investor conferences, he says, you know, two, three, four, and five, right? You know, if, if someone's going to ante up the money, sure, right? So they, why not? Yeah, like so, and, it, and it's great because it's one of these perpetuating things. Like you know, if, if I I can like sell sell. It's the, it's the hot potato game, right? Sell it to myself, right? Like they've actually done this within themselves, right? So Vision SoftBank will invest in something and sell it to the Vision Fund, and I think in some cases it'll sell it at a profit to the Vision Fund. <laughs> anyway, so you can see Vision Fund selling, and, yeah. keeping things going. Look, the Saudis. We know that the Vision Fund is in talks of raising another fund right now. And what's unclear is what structure that'll take, and whether 
you know, the Saudis will come in again with another $45 billion and will, you know, the United Arab, UAE, United Arab Emirates, or not, but, you know, all these other guys, the Middle East, will they, will they come in with big cash again? And I think a lot of, a lot's going to be determined in the next couple of months with the performance of Uber and WeWork and some of the hyper, hyper uh, some of their biggest chunks of this, of the vision fund portfolio, right? Like if, if, if people get hosed on Uber, if for some reason, like Uber is already like, it's initially going to be coming at 100 billion. Now the talk is 86 billion for the IPO price. And if it's, you know, if what's happening to Lyft begins to infect Uber stocks and like the Saudis are like, dude, like, you know, we're not getting our returns. And also, you know, the vision fund was structured like partly as a bond effectively and partly as a traditional venture capital. So I think, you know, the next couple of months will, will, will have a big impact because on, on their ability to do these follow on funds. You know, as I said, you know, um, Masayoshi Son has, he's, he, he sells the story, right? Like he really makes a very, he's, he's a very convincing salesman, right? People who meet with him talk about this. He's a charismatic guy. He's an iconoclast. So maybe he can pull it off again. Um, I, I am actually am very skeptical myself. The other thing that's needs to be seen is, is, oh, so with, Within Saudi Arabia, the vision fund is actually seen as Saudi Arabia's vision fund because they have their own. Huh. There's there's like a, a domestic program called Vision 2030, I believe. I forget the exact years, but like so there's this Saudi Arabia has this, you know, under the under the Saudi crown prince, they have this reform program, economic development and, you know, all these things. And so the partnership with SoftBank was supposed to bring in like all this high tech investment into Saudi Arabia. Initially, they're going to have like solar city for like a gazillion trillion dollars. And that kind of quietly got shelved and they were going to do all sorts of grandiose projects, which I, you know, if those don't happen, then the Saudis like, this is like sovereign wealth. This is like the hard earned money of those oil fields. And Saudi Arabia has a real problem because it's a demographic time bomb. It's got a lot, a lot, a lot of young people, and not a lot of prospects. So it really, and, and, you know, like oil dependency is sort of decreasing, uh, arguably in, in the long term. So they know they need to diversify the economy. They know they need to bring in new jobs. That's why they, they, they did this deal because they thought it was going to be like, this guy knows tech. He can make it happen for us. And. If he doesn't, like, I don't see how that's going to, you know, how can they domestically sell this deal again? Like, and say, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, we we blew through the first $100 billion in, like, you know, record time. Trust us. The next $100 billion, this time we're really going to do it. No, 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 just wait, just wait. <laughs> right? And so, you know, maybe, you, you know, like, so I, I that that to me is another big question is, like, I don't think I have a real clear sense of what the domestic politics are. And I think the domestic politics and pressures do have an impact on, on, on the vision fund. What percentage of the vision fund is Saudi money? Do you have that number offhand? I think it's about 45 billion, right? And I, I think, I'm not sure if that's 45 billion includes Abu Dhabi, but I think between the two of them, they have about half of it, right? They were like mm. by far they're right. And that's why when, uh, was it last year, vision fund wanted to put in, uh, like, over $10 billion into WeWork and the Saudis balked and that deal didn't happen, right? And ended up coming. So, so they do have uh, a lot of influence as well. As they should, as large investors, yeah. right? <laughs> so like I said, uh, we, we don't want to hold you too much longer, but I do want to ask you one more question um, and that's about their relationship with Alibaba. So you mentioned earlier on that SoftBank was one of the early investors in Alibaba and 
since then, they've kind of been two peas in a pod when it comes to, to investment deals, kind of going hand in hand to a lot of these companies. As far as you know, uh, like what is the thinking behind that? Why have they been such, um, such good partners when it comes to their, their investment deals? Oh, I, I think it's a simple, uh, um, SoftBank still holds, uh, I think if they're not the largest shareholder, they're among the biggest shareholders. They're the largest. They're the largest shareholder. So I think does Masa mm-hmm. have a seat on the board? I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. But so they, you know, what's good for Ali is good for SoftBank and arguably vice versa. They just own so much of it. And so much of SoftBank's value actually comes from its stake in Alibaba. Mm. Yeah, so SoftBank owns 28.9% of uh, Alibaba. Well, there you go. Ah, okay. Yeah. That explains it. Yeah. I, I, James, do you have any more questions? I think, you know, we, we, we sort of talked about it a little bit, but I think the Wall Street Journal wrote about it, but, you know, this kind of hot potato, or I think it's actually called warehousing in the industry, but where SoftBank makes an investment and then later on sells it to one of their funds, you know, and they've gotten pushback from that. And I think actually there was one case where they they were going to buy the investment back, or, maybe, or this is maybe ongoing, but they're going to buy it back at a, at a loss to themselves. So it's also sort of like, you know, what... what <laughs> What are they? What are they uh, doing? And yeah, I, I don't know. I think uh, just in general, my my personal point of view right now is that you know mobility. You know, I think even if they're able to get a- absolute market control, right? You know, complete uh, monopoly somehow. You know, maybe it's a localized monopoly, but whatever. I I don't really see the economics working until there's. Complete autonomous driving, and even then, that's way down the road. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of rambling here, but if if you want to touch on any of that closing, yeah. So, I I I have like this. I wrote a story about a small taxi hailing app in Hong Kong called HK Taxi. They've raised maybe a couple hundred thousand. I think they've raised finally like a million bucks or something. Team has about twenty people. The software is written by like. Two coders in a in a in a five floor walk up flat in like deep Mongkok, and they successfully have held off Didi and Uber uh, for a couple of years now. Granted, now Hong Kong has regulations, so you cannot have. There's a very restricted number license of of uh, sort of uh, limousines, and you cannot operate an unlicensed ride hailing service. And so, like Uber drivers have been charged with crimes, and that's sort of. So there's a regulatory hurdle. But within that regulated playing field, it turns out that you don't need millions, you know, you don't need teams of thousands of engineers to run what I, an app that yeah. I use all the time. Turns out that this Yeah, is, it's like um it's like the all the all you need is uh infrastructure. You need like a little tiny layer that connect corrects a very small fee or something that just connects the rider and the passenger. You don't need this massive Thing it's like you know you used to have to use a telephone. You call up a private car, you know, or you call up a taxi to come pick you up. You just need the infrastructure to connect the passenger with the driver. Yeah, yeah, and there's exactly so there's lots of and so at some point you know if this becomes a more regulated industry, the value of like what's the value of an international? Yeah, the value of an international company. What's the value of a international platform? 
Right. Like, I mean, like, I don't know. I, you know, like it could be that governments decide that, no, 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 we want it unregulated or they decide like, well, no, this is rent that we're not collecting. We need to be collecting this rent. I was actually arguing uh, about this the other night, but I don't think you need regulation to come back for these ride hailing companies to have problems. I think there are constraints in their business model already that hinder their profitability. I mean, as long as there's optionality for the passenger, there's always going to be a floor for the driver, right? A constraint of like what they were willing to accept. Now, the whole business model doesn't make sense. It's never made sense to me, but the whole business model of taking those two constraints and then adding in between them a 20 to 25% margin that goes to Uber or DD or one of these, how does that, how does that jive? And then the, the problem is what they've sort of done is a supply side technological change that allowed, you know, they, they circumvented regulation and maybe that's why regulation comes back, but they've allowed more drivers than were actually available, right? To come right. in, and when you flood the market with supply, what happens? Price goes down, and in order to get demand to hit that price, you know, demand to hit that quantity of supply, price has to stay low, or there has to be a shift of a demand curve or or something. And right. without that happening, which you know, there's constraints on the bottom that the drivers are willing to accept. There's constraints on what the passengers are willing to pay. That's why you have to subsidize them, right? You know, like that twenty percent doesn't ever show up in my calculus when I do this. You know, interesting. But you know, if I had a chance to invest in Uber and I wasn't a journalist, I probably would have. Yeah, because <laughs> somebody else is going to buy this. Well, that's kind of that's kind yeah, of the it's thing. The, the later, the second that, pool. That's what everybody's doing. <laughs> everybody's probably like, ah, you know, it's. That's the frustrating thing about all this. But if it never becomes right, but like if it never gets profits, it'll eventually have to. But short selling, yeah. right? But like, how long, you can be use it? You can be right longer yeah. than you can be solvent. Yeah, yeah, right. Like shorting Uber is going to be a, the quote is uh, markets can remain um, irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Right, and that's one hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, and so the timing of these things is super important. I wouldn't, I mean, even though I, I've never really understood the business model, I wouldn't have like shorted Uber, although I am considering considering that now. But yeah, we'll see what happens. We, we had Ann Stevenson Young on a couple of weeks ago, and, and she said something. Oh, that, that was a bit fun. That, yeah, <laughs> it's always fun with Ann. But she, she said, like, everyone likes to say that they're a value investor. But value, value, no one's, no one's value invested for like a decade. <laughs> like it's value investors, value investing is dead. Like even, even like Warren Buffett, you know, which is kind of, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's classic Anne in that, you know, she is, uh, not exactly painting the rosiest picture, um, in her mind all the time. But yeah, it was something that, that I kind of think about when I look at, you know, the, the situation with a lot of these companies is that, you know, it's, it's it's not a value game. It's a you know. It's a how long can this growth story keep going on? You know, the, like what you guys are saying. You know, you can be right. You know, a lot longer than you can be solvent. So, oh well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, shy for our listeners, if they want to follow you or read what you write, how can they do that? Well, they should subscribe right away to the information. Uh, we're at theinformation.com, and if they uh, they should also follow me. 
I'm at uh, at Beijing Scribe on Twitter. And uh, if you look at my handle closely, there's a nugget there that might might entice you to subscribe even sooner. I think uh, there's a dollar offer on my Twitter handle. Oh, yeah. And I should also sign up for Jessica Lesson's uh, weekly newsletter. And uh, yeah, uh, we are we are worth every penny. Uh, at least it feels that I'm sweated through every penny that we charge. <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah, it, it don't come easy. What, one thing. Just for our listeners, one thing that I think the information is just about better than anyone else is is how well you guys dig into the organizational structures and the people behind each of these companies, and that that I think is is really what what makes the information stand out. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we've done one of our uh, we do these org charts that are are a ginormous pain in the keister to do, <laughs> where basically we take public and private companies and wrench pry loose from them like. Corporate secrets, like this is your reporting structure, and, and Amira Fradi, who's our uh, auto reporter, like it's like here are the top a thousand people in like Waymo. I think his, his Waymo org chart had like 350 people. Yeah. Uh, Yunan wow. Zhang, uh, who's our ace reporter, one of our ace reporters here, she had like a hundred people from ByteDance, and even ByteDance was like, how on earth did you get this? And uh, we just did one on uh, Tencent, which was also. Just getting, we just did uh, a top 50 people at Tencent, and it was such uh, um, a painful process to piece that together. Uh, so much blood uh, and tears were shed over that. But they're valuable both uh, in terms of understanding how companies organize themselves, how they work, who's really in charge, who's in control. Uh, for example, in Tencent, it was interesting to see just how much power Martin Lau had right. versus Pony Ma. Uh, like, almost all the reporting lines go to Martin now. Uh, so that was interesting to see there. At ByteDance, like the the tweet that went viral was like they've doubled their staff to forty thousand in a year, which gives them a bigger headcount than Facebook. All right, no, Facebook outsources a lot of the painful stuff, but still, it just gives you a sense of like the ambition. And of that forty thousand, fully ten thousand are sales, another five thousand are. Uh, oh, sorry, I forget the like. There's more like people involved in sales and content moderation than are in software engineering. Wow. Well, so I mean, just yeah. hearing those those numbers when they were starting to get cracked down on it was in like late 2017, early 2018. You know, there was some we're going to hire 10,000 people. You know, in the China market to to moderate, and then you look at all these different. You know, in in India now, all their India language apps. You know, and it, you know, for the just local languages and and kind of how the you know they're starting to get more government government scrutiny there, and just the you have to wonder about the sustainability of that. And and when you know, especially because it's 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 you kind of need people to do that. It's you know, AI can't really can't really do that at this point. So um, yeah, it's a it's an it's an interesting thing for sure. Anyways, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Um, also. Yeah. Oh wait, I I think the information also famously bo- broke. Uh, I I forget which story. They were they've broken massive tech stories in the last year. I think there was one that was huge that, that I'm blanking on. There were so many, it's hard to keep yeah. track of. <laughs> you know, we had uh, JD layoffs. We had randomly... Oh, no, the, the Richard Leo one. That was... No, 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 the, that wasn't us. No, oh, we, oh yeah. no, 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 no. Good grief, no. Who had the arrest on that one? I think it was the, like the local paper. The, the, the Minneapolis Star Tribune or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... um. You, right, you gotta right, subscribe right. to know all the scripts. Yep, yep. Okay. All right. Thanks for joining us, Shai. Thanks, Shai. It was a pleasure. Remember, so subscribe to the information. I'm at uh, Beijing Scribe on Twitter.
All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Shai Oser for joining us today. For our listeners, please be sure to, as always, give us five stars on iTunes, give us a star on Overcast, just rate us or give us a positive comment wherever you get your, your, uh, your podcast. And also, if you have any feedback, we, we welcome your feedback. Uh, any questions about, the po- about what you hear on the podcast or, or any ideas for maybe new guests or how we can improve, just come after us on Twitter. I'm at Elliot Zagman. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N. And James is James Hull X, J-A-M-E-S-H-U-L-L-X. Also, be sure to sign up for TechNode newsletters. That's technode.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China tech. James, what are you looking forward to this week? So we're still in earnings season, and um, JD is announcing tomorrow, that's May 10th, and then next week on the 15th, we got Xiaomi, Tencent, oh boy. and Alibaba, and then some, some other stuff. I mean, we got a lot. That's a lot of work to do. Uh, no so guests next week. Not we'll go over earnings. <laughs> yeah, we'll do earnings calls at earnings, <laughs> maybe for a couple weeks. But yeah, that's that's. Uh, yep, looking forward to that. And yeah, so I I am about to head over to the Middle Kingdom for a little China tour. So this, we're recording this on the 9th. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to head over to Shenzhen. I'm going to be there for a few days for some work things. Uh, we're going to be up to Beijing for a while. And then towards the end of the month, I'm going down to Shanghai for a few different reasons. But first and foremost, mainly to go to the Technode Emerge Conference. It is a uh, the first ever Technode Emerge Conference is a deep dive into emerging China tech trends. We're going to go over artificial intelligence, digital marketing, shift to enterprise, corporate innovation, slowing economy, expand to Southeast Asia and India, and blockchain, of course. And I'm going to be doing a few things. So you, if, uh, if you only hear my wonderful voice uh, every week and you've never seen my, my beautiful face, um, you can come and say hi to me. Uh, and James as well. Uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, moderating a panel on expansion into India and Southeast Asia. And we're also going to be recording a live episode of the China Tech Investor Podcast with a very, very, very special guest. Yeah. So James, I, I am also looking forward to that, by the way. But yeah, looking forward to seeing you and seeing everyone at Technode Emerge. Yeah, it's at the Shanghai Explorium from 9.30 to 5.15 on May 23rd. All right, anything else we got to go over, James? That's all. Thanks, everybody. Okay, join us all next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.